Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. As it was on Thursdays, joining us is Dwayne Generalissimo Patterson of the Hugh Hewitt Show, Master of the Universe, H-U-G-H-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.com, the troll-free web surfing experience for Hugh Hewitt fans and listeners. And Dwayne, I was normally supposed to be on last night, but I gold bricked. I was at I was at church singing, man. Well, it is uh, it is Easter week. Um, some people have to do that. Uh, no, it, it's perfectly fine. It's kind of a it's kind of a bizarre week anyway. I'm going to be gone for a while anyway because we're going to be you're going to be filling in for us and kind of filling in for Hugh while we do a Paris listener cruise. Uh, so it, it's kind of getaway day for me tomorrow. And um, finished packing over the weekend, and we head off to Paris and spend about three, four days there, and then hop on a boat and go to uh, Normandy and back. That's well, going to yeah. be a whole lot of fun. That's going to be a whole lot of fun. I'm going to be involved in that, too, because I will be uh, co-hosting on, um, on, on a few of those days. Five, five of the ten days, right? I'm, I'm co-hosting five of the ten days. I think it's supposed to be you are five days. You are going to be, actually, you may be six it may be better. I think what it's supposed to be is the first week we're there, which is the week of the 18th, uh, Wednesday and Friday that week, we are supposed to broadcast from the hotel, and you're going to kind of fill in in case something happens at the hotel and we can't seem to make this work. Uh, you're there to uh, step in and, and, and you know fill, fill, the, uh, fill the breach if necessary. And then the following week, we're actually going to be floating down the river on a boat, uh, dealing with the ship's Wi-Fi, and hopefully marrying that in with local French cell towers, if I get a French SIM card with prepaid data. And if all that works in the, in the magic machine, kind of pulls the resources and goes back and forth, um, it'll work. But my guess is Ed will be featured prominently for four days that week while we're afloat. <laughs> Well, I'm looking forward to that. That'll be fun. And by the way, I, I have to pay my taxes tomorrow, so I could use the cash, man. <laughs> hey, there's always that too, isn't there? I can use it. Yeah, I, can, I know. I can I... use. I can use the scratch, man. I'm telling you right now. Well, except a person in your station now that does not have a mortgage payment. I'm not too. <laughs> I'm not too sympathetic to the fact that you've got to pay taxes. Oh yeah. And in fact, know, I, I, well, I, I missed my mortgage payment this month. And last month, and the month before that. <laughs> yeah, and, and the fact that you're paying, well, you're paying taxes based on Minnesota years still. You're not really, you're not really paying Texas tax, right? You're paying Minnesota tax. Well, here's the nice thing. There is no Texas tax, which is one of the reasons why I'm in Texas. Uh, there's property well, I taxes. I understand taxes, that. Which I, I understand which I that, but, <laughs> but, you, but you have to, but you have to pay tax on income last year you earned in Minnesota. Yes. Right? Yes. I did. I did have to pay that. So so then then things get easier for you. It does get a little easier for me, although the Minnesota part wasn't the problem. <laughs> it was the federal part that was the problem. Of course. But, you know, I'm just saying. A lot of, lot of, lot of scratch 
I'm, I'm looking forward to the eventual payday when it goes through all of the Salem machinations to get onto the check. I will, I will look forward to, I will look forward to that little boost. I'm looking forward to being on the air. It should be a lot of fun. It'll be very challenging, but it'll be like what we did with the debates too. So we did something very similar with the debates and you and I had a blast with it. So I'm looking forward and, to that. And yeah, if, if you remember the debates, that was where Hugh would all of a sudden say, Oop, gotta go TV. Uh, take it away, Ed. And he just was gone. <laughs> yeah. Which was, yeah, we're going to have that only with without the uh, um, take it away, Ed, because by the time right. he gets to well, take it away, Ed, he's going to not be there. So Right. Yeah. What's going to happen is we're going to be in mid that was and now and over. now and now we're going to come back with a little bit more yes, with, that's, from from that's, Hugh that, Hewitt and that's myself. What's happen. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So we may take breaks. I might just fill. I might just vamp. Not sure if we're going to be doing guests or guests on standby. We we will we will be doing guests. We will be doing that kind of stuff. So uh, I will make sure the boys get you a cut sheet and a run sheet so you kind of are prepared like you are uh, hosting because yeah. it's like you know in case of. In case of fire, break glass break and out glass. pops Ed. I am I I am the break glass I am the break glass option. Uh, Kurt Schlichter will be the break furniture option. He'll be actually in the studio on the days when we know that he's not gonna be able to do it. Correct. Like the first two days, Monday and Tuesday, we actually take off out of LA and have a direct flight right. to Paris. So you know, a eighteen hour flight, I exaggerate, it's really about six, I don't know how it's it's a it's lot. Long. But what, whatever that flight is, you know, we leave in the afternoon, which means we don't get there until Tuesday mid-morning Paris time. Uh, so, you know, Monday is completely shot, and Tuesday, by the time we get off the plane, get our stuff, get over to the hotel, check in, figure out what room we're going to broadcast in, and actually see if the dumb stuff works, it's already, you know, there, there's just no way to get on the air Tuesday. So right. the first day we're going to try it is Wednesday. Right, Exactly. That'll be my first day in on Wednesday. And uh, by the way, uh, I just one really quick question before we get off of this and get onto the uh, news of the day. Um, yep. you, you didn't have um, you didn't have Gallagher make your travel arrangements, right? Because he probably he probably route you guys over Ukraine to get to Paris. <laughs> no, we uh, we don't trust we don't trust Gallagher with um, well anything. <laughs> We, we kid, we kid. Mike Gallagher is like the sweetest guy you'll ever want to meet. He's just a big old teddy bear. Yes. So we, 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 like yes. to, we like to tease Mike Gallagher. It's a, it's, it's yes, a tradition. It's a tradition. All right. So getting on to the news of the day. Lots of stuff to discuss. I'm not sure what you guys covered on the Hugh Hewitt show. I, I did see that Hugh retweeted um, Admiral Stavridis' um, uh, observation on the Moskva. Now, this is an interesting story coming out of Ukraine. Now, did you have Stavridis on today? Uh, no, we had uh, we had Stab on Wednesday. Yeah, is when we had him on. We had him on yesterday. Yeah. All right. So and uh, yeah, Stab's uh, Stab's attitude was, um, uh, you know, if if that were to go down, I mean, there's there's 64 S300s on that. You know, that was that was basically Russia's mobile anti-aircraft thing, which helped feed yeah, it's a, it's a their crazy, their yeah. air dominance. In, 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 that, that's their that's their air dominance in uh, in the, in the region. And well, especially in the Black Sea. Is, I mean, especially in the Black Sea area. And, and this is the, and through were, Crimea and through and Crimea. Through Crimea. They're, yeah, they're they're covering their operations in the Black Sea and uh, and, and in the attempt by Russia to cut off Ukrainian access through Mariupol to the Black yep. Sea. 
And so, I mean, it's a and, huge loss for Russia. And, and if that and if that goes down, that basically means that uh, Ukraine can fly unfettered all the way down into Ukraine, all the way to the Black Sea. That that actually can be a game changer, which is why yesterday when Joe Biden said, oh, sure, we'll send you those helicopters. Oh, wait, no, we're not going to send you those helicopters to, well, okay, fine, I guess we'll give you the helicopters all in the matter of the same day. Yeah. It's, it's maddening, Ed Morrissey, because... You know, we've got a chance to actually maybe put our thumb on the scale a little bit if that it you know it's true that, that ship went uh, went tango uniform and and is now sitting at the bottom of the Black Sea. Um, why wouldn't we exploit that open airspace now and let Ukraine go to town, right? Yeah, for I mean, those of you who aren't military, I'm not military, but I do know what tango. I I, I worked with enough military guys to know what tango uniform means. Uh, tango it, it, uniform. <laughs> Is a affectionate over. term. <laughs> it it flipped over, shiny side up. It's 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 a way of expressing that you have now assumed room temperature. It's a it's it's a way of saying that you you're prone face up. Uh, I'll, I'll just yes, put it that you're, way. Your 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 mammalian your 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 mammal glands are now uh, pointing northward. Pointing northward. Yes. Which is what you don't want that necessarily on a ship. So yeah, it went correct. I, now. There was some dispute as to whether it actually went tango uniform or whether it just was crippled. Um, Russians are saying they're going to tow it back to a base for repairs, but I, I mean, they were abandoning ship. Um, it sounds like this thing is uh, a 100% loss at the moment. They might be able to scrap it. it. It sounds to me, and what it, you know, obviously we don't know what we don't know, which is, you know, fog of war all over the place there. Right. But if uh, if uh, a Neptune hit that thing and it actually uh, exploded or ignited some of the onboard anti anti aircraft missiles and those things, you know that that's like that's like you know shooting up a firework factory, right? Yes. You know you. I mean that's that's one of the big dangers on any ship is when your munitions catch fire because that alone can all of a ship. sudden yeah all of a sudden you know you've breached it from the outside with the with the Neptune but then if your onboard stuff goes haywire and starts going off well then there's really nowhere else to go right I mean that's and that's a huge problem on a ship fire is one of the fire is one of the 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 biggest issues on a ship and so. You know, Ukraine is saying that they that they put a couple of Neptunes right on top of that ship, and that's what caused this. The Russians are just saying that a fire broke out in its munitions locker, and that's what caused this. And Stavridis said that that, that had to be gross incompetence if that was true. Well, right, but didn't we didn't we also read reports that the ship had actually after the Neptunes hit it? It actually didn't capsize, but it, it basically Founder. was listing. Yeah. yeah, it was basically sideways, right? Yeah, it, it, was, it was. Yeah, it was. It was. That's the reason why they had to abandon ship, and who knows how many sailors got trapped in that in that thing when it did. Right. Um, but the other option, and that was, and that was Russia's biggest presence in the Black Sea. That was their flagship in the Black Sea. Right. I mean, right. the Moskva is uh, Moskva means Moscow. Moscow, <laughs> this was, right? This was their this was their the pride of their fleet. They, they named they named it right. Moscow you, for a reason. Right. You 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 don't you don't name you know the three hour the the, the three hour tour minnow boat. You don't name that the the Moscow. You no, name it's like, you know it's, it's like the Constitution was for the United States. Um, yep. I mean that's it's it's it, it's a pride of service 
point. And, and I mean, it's much more than that. You know, as, as Dwayne just got done saying, it was a major part of their, um, of their air supremacy uh, doctrine was, was resting on the Moskva. Um, the, other, the other alternate, which Stavridis didn't mention in his tweet, is that it, if it wasn't the Neptune, then it's gross incompetence. It's either gross incompetence, or the other thing is it could be is it could be sabotaged by Russian sailors who don't want to be part of this war. Um, and we've seen stuff like that from the infantry and from the mechanized infantry and from, even from some of the tank battalions, where they're spiking their they're spiking their vehicles and looking for ways to disappear. Um, or if you really want to entertain the could it be too good to be true, but boy would it be cool if it were. Yeah. Uh, why can't it be a combination of both? Why can't it have been hit by the Neptunes and then complicated by an incompetence on board? So yes, I mean I think that the um, I think that the it could be both, right? It could be very well both that it's it's that there was a that there was a strike on that uh, on the ship and that the sailors weren't terribly um, motivated. Let's say. Well, to, one to motivated, but but. But again, it, at this stage of the game, you know, the, the combat readiness of Russia was already shown to be kind of wanting to begin with. And the more time went on, they were, you know, Russia, uh, they, they were trying to grab conscripts for the army. They, they, right. they, at some point, they're going to run out of resources. They're going to run out of, of, of weaponry and they're going to run out of, of willing people to fight. Right. Exactly. And I think we're I think we're seeing uh, those, I think we're seeing those um, dynamics already coming into play. And so, yeah, that's, uh, well, that's what's going on in Ukraine. Um, well, so, so just a, the yeah. quick exit question on that. If it pans out to be true that Russia lost their, their you know, their, their highlight ship in, in the region, their, their, their main focal point in, in the region, what's their response? How, 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 what, what is, what does Putin do in response to that? Does he have to up his game? Does he go to a different level? Or is that something where he just says, back to the drawing board and sends another boat? I, I think he goes back to the drawing board and sends another boat. I mean, I, 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 I don't see how you, I don't see how he manages to escalate that because then it would, re, it would require him acknowledging that, that the Russian Navy just got beat. <laughs> For the second time, because don't forget they sunk the Orsk about three weeks ago in Berdyansk. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, I think that they don't want to necessarily. I don't think that Putin really wants to get into um, uh, the fact that he's picked a fight with somebody he can't beat, and um, and didn't know that he couldn't beat them. Uh, which brings us, by the way, before we even get off of this topic, which brings us to the subject of Finland and Sweden. Finland yesterday came out and said, you know what? This whole idea of Russian engagement enhancing our security, well, we're we're past that now, and uh, uh, we're, right. we're didn't, ready didn't to Finland, welcome NATO right. again. Didn't didn't Finland just uh, basically announce that in their their version of Congress, they are going to actually formally debate whether okay, it's time that we're going to join we're going to join NATO? Well, not only they're going to do that, but they I mean the, the government issued a white paper saying that um, that. Their, their decades-long policy of economic engagement with Russia turned out to be completely worthless and that the only way that they're going to be able to enhance their security is through collective security in Europe, and that means NATO. And, and, if, Finland, and if Finland comes into NATO, 
Sweden will be a, 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 a hot second behind. Sweden I mean, was there. The, be, Sweden was at the same press conference saying the exact I, same thing. That's what that's what I'm saying. There, you know, there, it's it's going to be a it's going to be a race to see who actually signs the the dock first. Oh, I think but it's going to be Finland. Will, I think it's going to be. Finland. I think it's going to be Finland too. But by before the inks dry, Sweden's going to be right behind them. Well, yeah, because they are they are allied together anyway, so they generally sure. act in concert with these things. And these guys have been. They've been aligned with NATO all along. They they do joint exercises with NATO. I mean, it's this is right. Not a, they just haven't been they just haven't been paying up. Well, now they're going to pay up. No, they haven't been part of the Article Five. The difference right. is that is now they're going to be part of Article Five, and probably even before they sign the thing, they're going to be part of Article Five, because correct because Putin's already threatening that this is going to have military and other military political consequences, which means that as soon as Finland says. We're applying. NATO is going to say our Article Five applies to you immediately through the application process because it's the only way that that works. Um, and and again, you know, it, it, when all that happens, for all of the folly that has uh, that that is uh, you know fallen on Russia and and Putin with this with this ridiculous you know aggression that he started. One of the goals that he said, one of his stated premises uh, early on was we can't, it's an existential move for us. We can't afford to have a NATO country on our, on our borders. We can't afford to have an expansion of NATO. The last thing in the world that he wants is an expansion of NATO. And what's he going to get? Massive an expansion. expansion of, a massive expansion of NATO. You know, that's I mean, an, it's, 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 an eight, it's an 850 mile border that Finland shares with Russia. Right. And and St. Petersburg is already about 100 miles from NATO troops thanks to uh, the Baltic states. But it's a lot easier to get to St. Petersburg from Finland than it is from the Baltics. Correct. Plus, and this is the big one, it puts it's NATO ground forces. a lot harder to defend. Forces, well, it's a lot harder to defend, but it puts NATO ground forces, potentially puts NATO ground forces within 150 miles of Murmansk, which is their big naval base. I believe it's their big naval submarine corps base. Uh, Murmansk is, and um, and that's something that they've never had to deal with. NATO has never been anywhere near Murmansk, and all of a sudden you've got, you may end up with NATO uh, armored armored forces, uh, just a couple hour drive, uh, you know, a couple hours drive away from Murmansk. I, this is a disaster. Right. It's a it's a, a right. political so, military so, disaster for Russia. So so what you've got now is when all this happens, if those two countries join NATO. You're going to have, you know, all the all the the military brass that's left, and all the politicos in Russia that haven't uh, been uh, disappeared by Putin. They're going to go back to Putin uh, like he's Captain Tupolev in Hunt for Red October. You air going to ask? You've killed us. I, it's uh, honestly, I mean, it's a great analogy, right? I mean, this is exactly the this is exactly the correct cinematic analogy. This is a guy who shot a torpedo with the safeties off and is coming back right, right in his face. This is it's yes. This, this is this but, may be the worst backfire, military political backfire since the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact of 1939 and close behind that is the winter war that the soviets tried to wage on finland shortly thereafter how how much general how much land have we taken today just enough to bury our dead yes and uh you know the soviets technically won that but only technically they got they, they ended up with about nine percent of finland's uh territory when they were trying to take over but the entire boy did it cost them a lot they got their in personnel kit. They got their ass yes. kicked, which is the reason why they finally settled it a few months later, because they just didn't have the personnel to do 
to do it. And um, it was a killing field. And and I Finland, mean, by the way, is prepared for this. Finland is not Ukraine. Finland trains its civilian population on an ongoing basis on homeland defense. Everybody in Finland is trained to carry a rifle, armed to the teeth, and they're yes. armed to the teeth, and they're uh, they're trained for combat. And have been ever right. since the Winter War of 1939-1940. There's a reason why Finland is prepared for this and Ukraine wasn't. Um, so, you know, Putin's Putin's saying that he's there's going to be military consequences for Finland. That's that's just gas. There's no, that's it, yeah, that's he, that's bluster. He doesn't have he can, units he, he can send up there now. He just doesn't. Yeah, have he, units he can send up no, there. no. He's he's he's. I mean, that's that's. Uh, that's that's you know that's his mouth right and checks his body can't cash right? yeah well there's, there's a whole lot of that going on with putin at the moment and and this is the point i think that we can say that may be a game changer because the uh the uh, uh that that move he can't cover up that move and it's going to be very clear in russia that he's the guy who precipitated it and and that is a consequence that will last for decades, decades. Right. And and, and what's going to happen? And what's going to happen on the short term is now that you don't have to worry about a bunch of uh, anti-air assets from the south, um, uh, you know, S three hundreds and whatever else. You're going to now see a more concerted effort by Ukraine to go back and and take back Donbass. And if if well, they, they need do, to, they need to relieve Mariupol before they do that. And and that's true. I understand. I understand. But but they are also they are going to they are in in the short to medium term, Ukraine is going to do a counteroffensive to try to take back Donbass. And if they do. Then Russia is in full-fledged retreat. If uh, well, if Crimea the, is uh, and, and Crimea is isolated too, and it's just a matter of time before they get pushed off the peninsula. You don't and don't correct. forget that the, the Tatars they, they in Crimea have, are right, not Russia, happy with Russia being there. Right, Russia actually may come out of this not only not getting Donbass that they wanted, but they may lose Crimea back to Ukraine in the process. Yeah, it very well may turn out that way. It, it, so I mean, it's not a it's not a done deal. There's a lot of fighting left to be done, and Putin isn't going to stop course. fighting. But I have a sneaking suspicion that Putin is going to catch one of those famous Politburo colds if if um, if uh, Finland and Sweden join NATO. Um, we're just we're just we're just not going to right. We're one day we're going to wake up and there's going to be somebody somebody new saying, you know what? We've um, we can't find we can't find Vladimir. I'm now in charge. And and we'd like to go back to status quo ante. Uh, yep. Uh, yeah. I I totally I totally agree. I, I that is a totally plausible scenario that um, uh, you know you're gonna have some some guy come come out like Hans Gruber saying you know Mr. Takagi will not be able to join us for the rest of his for life. The rest of his life, right? All right, moving on. I got to talk to you about a, a story that just popped up this morning from the San Francisco Chronicle about uh, your esteemed senior senator. I don't know if you guys caught this this morning. Um, uh, yes, in fact, we talked to somebody that is highly likely to run a, against Dianne Feinstein and be the successor to that seat, and that is Silicon Valley's own uh, Ro Khanna. Um, he is... Uh, amongst California politics, among the most likely to run as a Democrat and succeed Dianne Feinstein. And apparently that time is going to be coming sooner rather than later 
because it may not, it may not take an election. <laughs> and it may not take an election. It may, it may be an, an appointee yeah. thing and then and then running uh, to fill out the rest of the term. But apparently Diane Feinstein is getting to the point where she's introducing people to the furniture. Um, she's uh, yeah. she's not all there. And, you know, that's that's the thing about the Democratic Party leadership right now. You've got Nancy Pelosi at 80 years old, and she's, you know, sometimes she's with it. There's a lot of times she's kind of as dotty as you please. You've got Chuck Schumer is no spring chicken. He's well into his 70s. Uh, Joe Biden is 78 years old. I mean, well, I think the, Biden, the spring... is, I think actually Biden is probably the, the, the better argument here because Pelosi, her, her nuttiness has been part of her composition for many, many years. And it's not really age. I understand that. But well, but if you actually study and you play cuts from week to week, month to month, all of a sudden Nancy Pelosi will go off somewhere and you're thinking, you're looking at each other in the press room going, um, is, is she okay? She's she's getting a little loopier the older oh, she gets. She, she's not going to be there for much longer anyway. She'll run for election. She'll she'll win the seat, and then she'll resign when she's not speaker in, in, the, in the next session. So Nancy Pelosi's gone in six or, well, eight, eight or nine months. Nancy Pelosi's gone in eight or nine months regardless of, yep. of this. But, um, but, yeah, Feinstein, I mean – You've got old guys on the Republican side too, but Grassley's all there. I mean, Grassley is is still fit and active. He's he's sharp. Mitch McConnell is older than Joe Biden is, but Mitch McConnell is in full command of what's right. going on in the yeah. Senate. Yeah, he's he's I not mean, lost a he's not lost a step at all. He hasn't lost a step at all. You may not like his tactics. You may not like the draw. You may not like how he. How well, he, like, uh, you well, know, presents I'm in Texas, man. Well, I I understand that, but I'm saying he's obviously got his critics on the right for not yeah. going. You know, you know, Trump doesn't like him. There's a lot of mega people that don't like him because he's too cagey. He's not. He's not. You know, rah rah uh, maga enough. Right. Uh, I'll tell you, as far as tactics and strategy, McConnell is a brilliant guy, and he hasn't lost a beat on be. You know, to, to people, he's he's right on the on the ball, and he's older than Biden is. Yeah. Biden is everybody knows by looking at Joe. I mean, Quinnipiac's poll yesterday, he's at 33 percent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, yeah, it, it, there's where, a whole confidence crisis the, issue going on with Joe Biden. No doubt about it. Where is the floor for Joe Biden? He's at 20. What was it? He's at 26 percent with Indies. Yeah. He's at 21 percent. With millennials, twenty-one to thirty-four, mm -hmm. he's at twenty-six percent with Hispanics. Twenty-six. Do you remember the twenty-twelve election of uh, between Mitt Romney and and Barack Obama? Do you remember what Mitt Romney got as far as the Hispanic vote? Was it thirty-four percent? No, it was like seventy-one twenty-six. Oh, so Romney got twenty-six percent. Okay, twenty-six percent of the vote. It's now, according to Quinnipiac, and I understand this is polling rather than actually right, right, going right. and pulling the lever, but Joe Biden right now has an approval amongst Hispanics of 26%. That's, what, 80% underwater? Yeah. Compared to just 10 years ago? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... That's disastrous for, <laughs> for Democratic politics. Yeah, even if, they don't, even if they don't come out and vote for the Republicans... 
If they're not turning That's on voting disastrous. for the Democrats, it's an absolute disaster. And the reason why, by the way, is because of all the nonsense of the all the woke nonsense. Hispanics are completely turned off by this, and people have been trying to explain this to them. The Latinx crap, the the all of this stuff about how uh, you know parents. Should They're be Roman Catholics education. by and large. They don't they don't like a lot of this stuff. Well, I'll. We don't have enough time left on this podcast to talk about the Catholic vote, but I I'd well, be happy to no, have a conversation no, with I, you about it when we but, do. No, but what I'm saying is a, a, a large majority of the Hispanics in this country yeah. are pro-family. Well, they're Catholics They've or evangelicals. They're either Catholics or yes. evangelicals. Neither one of yes. which and tend to like. They those don't types of like this yeah. stuff. Yeah. They just don't like it. Yeah, and so so yeah. yeah. It's disastrous well, and, for Democrats and, and, right and, now. And and by the way, part of the reason for this is simply a, a matter of incentives. The 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 woke, the, the all this woke stuff has been calculated to one particular demographic, black voters, and a largely at the expense of Hispanic voters inside cities that have high right. crime rates now, that have you know high cost of living now, and Democrats aren't speaking to those issues. And so they're losing the they're losing the Hispanics in those cities. Not to mention the Hispanics that have that have gone out, moved out to the suburbs, started their own businesses. I mean, this is sort of the unfolding of the traditional unfolding of a, an immigrant demographic as they as they assimilate into in, into the and, country. And that and that number, that Quinnipiac number, is based off of surveys conducted through last week right right yep okay so what happened this week we have two pieces of data in a one-two punch back to back the cpi number <laughs> and the ppi number yeah. right yeah and so now what did media talk about all day yesterday oh in, in oh all, my god all look, week look at the inflation all week right the inflation number is through the roof now how are people now that they're marinating in all this news about we haven't seen numbers like this in 40 years. Blah, blah, yeah, all this. How is is there a floor for Joe Biden? Is there an absolute rock solid floor or is he going to crash below 30 percent in the next Quinnipiac? Man, I got to I got to say that first off, I'm surprised that Quinnipiac got him all the way down to got 33%. down to 30. I never would have. guessed. I know. That. I never would have. guessed. I, that. And, and, and the thing is, remember, Nixon got down into the 20s. Carter got down pretty low. Yep. Well, yeah, Nixon was Nixon had an actual scandal that was dragging him into the twenties too. But I don't sure. think did Trump ever drop out of the thirties? I don't think he ever did. Nope. No, he never did. Um, uh, and, Joe, and he Bi- had Joe Biden is <laughs> right. Um, you look at you look at the the CPI and the, and the uh, PPI numbers. Yep. I, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but to me. The 8.5%, which is last year to this year for CPI, and the 11.2% for for PPI, that's all well and fine to talk about that number, but that's not the real number. That's not the magic number. The number that's the the one you talk about, it's like driving a car, right? Right. And you've got the telemetry on board. You've got the little computer where you can hit the button, and it will show you all the stats. It will show you what your average mile per gallon is it'll show you how many miles you have left it'll, you know, on the tank it'll show you all that telemetry right right well that's fine to say 8.5 percent from last year to this year that's the equivalent in a car of saying okay you drove this many miles on your last tank of gas okay well that's fine to know 
But that's not the gauge that people look at when they're driving the car. What they look at is the speedometer. The, the big thing that people look at is how fast are you going? What's the current rate of speed? And what that rate of speed is in economic terms isn't the 8.5%. What did it do from last month to this month? Right, exactly. It was at 1.2%. <clears throat> now, you take that 1.2% as a rate of speed. Yep. And you calculate it over a year. We're sitting on a consumer price index inflation number at current pace, at your current speed. You're at 14.4%. Yep. 14.4%. Your producer price, you do the same thing for the producer price number. Yeah. It moved up 1.4% from month to month. We're now at 16.8, almost 17%. Yeah. No, I saw that. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, I I do have to contradict you on one thing. The one thing that people look look at most closely when they're driving is their phone. Yeah. Yes. At least, at least from at least from my experience. Is that what they do in Texas? Is that why they're kind of wandering around and, uh, they were, and, and, they were doing and lane drifting? It, they were doing it in California when I was out there in California last week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah, we do that here, actually. Uh, I, I have to admit, we do that here. So we've actually got a, uh, after this, this is a great but, segment. Yeah, but, we've, got a, we've got a great segment you coming up with, now, uh, Yeah, with Ovik Roy. But you understand about, the analogy, right? Yeah, I mean, and I talk about Ovik Roy, about inflation, about, about structural inflation, and i got a great... About 30 minutes coming up next with Ovik Roy about this very topic. Uh, this is what's right. this is what's corroding the Democratic Party's prospects. They're absolutely desperate now. There's a Hill story out this morning. I haven't read it yet about how they're looking to focus on the deliverables for their midterm message. And the deliverable that everybody cares about is 16.8 percent inflation rate in producer price index and 14.4 percent in consumer right. price uh, increases. And and so that's the deliverable. So when- when the PPI number came out yesterday, Steve Leesman over at CNBC said, "Look, there's more inflation in the pipeline. We're, we haven't, but we haven't, you know, we haven't maxed out. We haven't hit the right. hit the peak yet because there's more inflation uh, pressure in the pipeline with this PPI number. So now, what you have on top of that going into the summer." What's going to happen when all this Russian and Ukrainian wheat and corn and food is not available because they've been blowing each other to smithereens? What's going to happen when there's a food shortage on top of this over the summer going into the fall? I mean, Democrats, they're going to get smashed, Ed. They're going to get absolutely um, wiped out. Dwayne, we're out of time. we got to run here, but... um, uh, What's I guess we could say what's coming up on tomorrow's Hugh Hewitt show. I don't know what you've got scheduled. I know you got Dr. Larry Arn doing the, the regular Friday thing. We, we we do have Dr. Larry Arn, but it is Good Friday. It's a best of for us, so oh. we are actually going to be off. Uh, it's a two-hour Good Friday conversation with Archbishop Charles Chapu out of yeah. uh, Philadelphia. So it's a it's a fine conversation. It's about the meaning of Good Friday, Easter week, all that stuff. It's basically a two-hour conversation, all things Catholic, uh, <laughs> and uh, that will happen tomorrow. Uh, I will do an after show Friday afternoon uh, for people that want to go into the universe. Lilacs will be along, and I will do a Baker's Dozen and have a little fun with James. Haven't caught up with him in a few weeks. And then I'm off. I'm out. I'm gonzo for two weeks all because right. we got to go yeah, do the so, cruise. So we won't be doing the podcasts 
we won't be doing our normal podcast stuff with Dwayne for the next couple of weeks. So this is the last shot we're going to have with him for a couple of weeks. After that, we'll we'll go back to normal, obviously. But right, safe safe travels, my friend. Looking forward to working with you um, remotely, as always. I mean, I'm always yes. remote, so. <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully, we will be able to see you and talk to you. That is the plan. But if not, we trust that you will uh, not make a complete hash of it. Well, I trust I won't make a complete hash of myself either. Dwayne Gentilissimo Patterson, Master of the Universe, H-U-G-H-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.com, troll-free web surfing experience for Hugh Hewitt fans and listeners. You stay tuned. There I am. You stay tuned because we got more coming up from Ovik Roy about inflation. You don't want to miss this, folks. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. Joining me now, uh, honored to introduce Ovik Roy from FreeUp. We're going to talk about FreeUp, uh, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Um, lots to hear about that. But we're also going to be talking about inflation, not just the current inflation, which we'll probably talk about a little bit, but why inflation's been a much bigger deal for a much longer time than you think. Ovik, thanks for joining us today. So good to talk to you. Ed, it's, it's really great to be with you. I've been a fan of Hot Air from the beginning. Uh, so cool that you guys are still going strong. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, hopefully for many more years. I mean, I'm uh, I'm I'm certainly enjoying myself. And uh, look, I mean, the way that uh, the economy is going, you, you got to stick with a good job that pays, right? Hey, yeah. You know, I mean, or someone like me, I have multiple jobs. So, you know, you got to you got to work double to, to keep 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 up with the inflation. Well, I mean, let's talk a little bit about that, because I think that that's actually um uh, more true than people realize. Uh, we, I don't know if you want to start with the current uh, threat of inflation or um, with the, with the larger point that you're making about inflation at FreeUp. That's f r e o p p dot org, folks. Um, but um, Ovik, I mean, let's let's start with the inflation that's going on right now. You've got um, Joe Biden and the White House desperately trying to spin this as Putin's price hike. When you can look back over the last um, year. At, uh, at government data, which shows that inflation was, was at least the, the way we normally measure inflation, was largely tame all the way through 2020 and didn't really start spiking upwards until the second quarter of 2021. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's a huge problem. I think, you know, those of us who are old enough to remember the 70s remember how bad inflation was then and how politically potent of an issue it was. Um, but it was politically important because it affected people in a significant way, wiped out their savings, uh, made, made it hard for them. You know, people who live pay, paycheck to paycheck made it even harder to live paycheck to paycheck than already was. Um, these are huge problems. And, and I would say that um, uh, uh, before we get to the bigger historical piece of, of, of this conversation, uh, it's important to say that what we're going through is really bad. This is the highest rate of inflation in 40 years. And we also have to remember that um, we often use the term inflation synonymously with an official government statistic called the Consumer Price Index for All Urban Consumers, or CPIU, which is a measure of inflation, uh, but there are many other definitions or measures of inflation as well. And so uh, it, it's important to understand that this official government measure of inflation, this is the thing I talk about in our um, uh, our, our premier Substack post. We, we launched a Substack newsletter today at, at substack.freeop.org. Um, and that uh, the point I make in that, uh, one of the points I make in that newsletter is that the official measure of inflation, the CPIU, actually understates the true inflation in two ways. 
first, uh, it's meant to be what the average consumer buys in a given month, say groceries and, and you know, your phone bill and your heating bill and your rent and, or your mortgage, things like that. Now, what if you're not the average consumer? What if you make less than the average consumer? Or what if you live in a part of the country where the cost of living is higher than it is for the average consumer? Like there are lots of reasons why you might not be part of the average, right? You might right. be below average in both your income and above average in your, your cost of living, your, your, consumer, uh, your consumer spending. And so think about this, like if the average is as bad as 8.5%, think of it what it could be for like someone who's on a deal on who's making 30 or $40,000 a year below average, the average household income is 63,000 or 65,000, something like that. So what if right. you're making 50,000 or 40,000, you're worse off because the grocery still costs the same, whether you're making 40,000 or 50,000, it's just a bigger share of your income, a bigger share of your pocketbook. So that's a problem. So inflation is very regressive because it disproportionately harms lower income people. If you're wealthy, your home prices have gone up, you know, so you think you're rich. Oh, my, my, like here in Austin, where I live, uh, my home price has doubled, you know, on paper, obviously I'm not selling the house, but the right. point is like in theory, I'm richer because my home price has doubled. Uh, and, and so the cost of living piece of it is, while it's not great, it's at least compensated for by how much I'm making because my home price is doubled. But what if you don't own your home? What if you rent? Right then, the problem is much greater. So all this to say that inflation affects different people in different ways, depending on what you need to spend money on and how much you make relative to the so-called government bureaucrat-defined average. So that's point number one. Point number two is that the CPI, in very important ways, actually miscalculates inflation. And so, you know, you might think you you'd ha you might have the impression that what the government does is when it produces this inflation index, it's looking at all the prices of all the goods at all the grocery stores and gas stations all around the country and vacuuming up all that data and spitting out an average price. Now, that's not what they do they, because the inflation index was built a long time ago when there wasn't that level of technology. So what they do instead is they send out surveys. So for example, on housing, to estimate how much rent is going up, they, they do a survey of landowners or landlords and say, if you had to rent your home today, how much do you think you could get for it? Not do you rent your home, and what are you renting it for? But if you were to rent your home, you know what it's called the owner's equivalent rent, okay. which as you can imagine is totally imprecise because for, for the majority of us who don't have experience renting out our home, we have no idea what we would we were supposed to be charging for renting out our home. So that's what they use to measure housing inflation as opposed to the objective data on Zillow or a hundred other websites that looks at actual home price sales, right? And if you look at that, right. uh, the, the price of the median home in America has gone up 20% in the last 12 months. But according to the surveys that the government does, it's only gone up 5%. And inflation, uh, the, the CPI uh, index, a third of it is supposed to be housing costs because housing is the biggest expense for, for most of us. So all that to say that if you take a third of that index and you, you say that it's, it's only growing at 5% when it's actually growing at 20%, that's a big difference. And so uh, the, the math ends up being 5%. So basically, the official number is eight and a half percent. That's what that's what we're told inflation was in March. Right. But if you actually look at it, it was probably more like 13 and a half percent. By the way, I just want to mention uh, that while you're talking about Austin, that uh, I've moved to Texas. And so, you oh, know, welcome. We are not that far. We are not that far apart. I won't say specifically where I'm at, but I'll just say that we're not that far apart. Um, okay, so, well, 
We'll have to get together for lunch sometime. I am looking forward to that. I was just about to say that. We we, 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 we will find a way to meet someplace and right. and uh, and hang out for a little bit. That would be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I moved I moved here uh, last summer. So um, I am. Hey. I, and so I've been through that process, right? I've been through yeah. the house sale process. I, oh, I am yeah. an immigrant. Yeah, I mean, you know, from I, I'm into I'm into free Texas now. So yeah, I feel like a I, I feel like I've achieved something here. But I've been through the process of selling my home, of buying another. Um, and I own my own home. And so I am part of that, that group of people who probably has a, a first off a more substantial, um, a net worth that's actually grounded in, um, both, uh, liquid and non-liquid assets, sure. but, but still making, you know, um, uh, middle-class income and, and which is not keeping up with the, uh, price with the, other prices that are going up, yeah. you know, specifically fuel, which yeah. is driving everything else, food, yeah. which is driving a lot of this. And when you take a look at these, you take a look at other goods in these in these reports. When you take the time to break these things down, I mean, some of this stuff is, you know, groceries are up ten percent. You know, and that yeah. I mean, that's I believe that's on a little bit more. That assessment is a little bit more uh, more solid footing. Heather Long, by the way, at the Washington Post, usually does a pretty good job of breaking down all of the different data in here and and putting it in historical perspective. Um, so she was working on that yesterday with the uh, yesterday with the CPI report. Uh, I didn't see anything that uh, she did on the PPI, but the PPI looked worse, right? And that's what's the PPI, the producer price index, is an indication of where we're going to be going in the next few months. Because this is the prices that wholesalers are basically charging, um, and those costs get passed along to consumers. So we're looking at several months here, at least, where you're going to see buying power eroded. And as you say, not evenly, it's very regressively um, yeah. among workers. And just simply put, that's that's all that's already been eroding, which we want to get to with your piece at substack.freeop.com. Which, by the org. way, while we were talking, Substack. I subscribed to freeup.org. Thank, Thank you. Substack.freeup.org, which, like I said, by the way, I, while we were talking, I subscribed to it. Um, <laughs> and everybody else should, too. Um, but, Ovik, I mean, um, even even without looking at the historical, the, the, the longer-term historical trend that I want to get to, you take a look over the last year, and the Wall Street Journal actually did a good job on this today, or last night, uh, talking about the net effect of inflation over the last 12 months on uh, workers buying power and they haven't and this is from the bls this is from government data and they have a chart up which shows that workers have only gained buying power in two of the last 13 months i yep. mean it's this is not putin's price hike this didn't just start six months ago um yeah. it, it's been on a bad trajectory for the last 13 months and uh and you have to know that workers understand this. So the Putin price hike thing is just incomprehensible as a messaging strategy to me. Well, they don't have many good options on the messaging well, true. front. Uh, so, you know, you, you kind of have to grade them on a curve uh, when it comes to their political strategy. But but I will I will say this, that the, the, the there have been a number of mistakes that the Biden administration has made. One is the massive six trillion in stimulus, which was not all done under Biden. Some of it was right. under Trump. Um, but... The, the, the doubling down on more stimulus at the beginning of his term definitely contributed to inflation. Larry Summers, Democratic economist, former Harvard president, former Treasury secretary under Bill Clinton, he made this point. He warned very aggressively and passionately that this was going to be the result. And here we are. But we also have to um, 
point out that a big part of the blame rests with the Federal Reserve, yeah. whose chairman and many of its other members of Board of Governors are Republican appointees. But Jay Powell in particular was initially appointed by Trump. His appointment was uh, renewed by Biden. So it's a bipartisan. You can blame both uh, Biden and uh, and, tr- uh, and Trump. And, and I think more importantly, in the case of Biden, like if he, he wasn't going to reappoint Powell, he's going to re- he was going to reappoint someone who would be, be even more pro-inflationary. So uh, it's not a matter of Powell specifically. In fact, the overwhelming consensus among the Federal Reserve Board of Governors is um, that inflation is OK. Like, you know, they, they actually had this massive and significant change in policy last year where Jay Powell and the board the Fed Reserve Board said, uh, it used to be we we really tried to keep inflation under 2%. 2% was the ceiling of inflation. Right. But in order to kind of, you know, stimulate the economy more, we're going to now say that we, we're shooting for an average of 2%. It can go above 2%, it can go below, but we're going to shoot for an average of 2% as opposed to having 2% be the upper bound that you try to a- avoid hitting. That was a massive policy change that didn't get a lot of attention at the time because I was in the middle of, uh, you know, last year, a lot of a lot of things were going on, particularly COVID. But that was a huge change. And, and, and you know, to people like myself, you know, who are macro econ wonks uh, who follow this stuff, a lot of us were very concerned about this, at least certainly those on the hawkish side of monetary policy were concerned about this. And like, look, you know, the Fed gets bad data. It's like a Friedrich Hayek's classic problem, knowledge problem where the, the, the central planners don't get the data until it's too late. So that's exactly what happened is the Fed threw all this money into the economy, which benefited the banks who received Federal Reserve money when they print it. It right. benefited venture capitalists, hedge funds, private equity, the stock market, corporations, entrepreneurs who get backed by Silicon Valley, that whole kind of supply chain of where money flows, real estate, but the average person doesn't see that money. What they see is higher prices. And all of a sudden, inflation's at 8%. And like all last year, I mean, you remember Powell and everybody else on the Fed board saying, oh, it's transitory. We're not, we're not, we're not worried about it. Right. And here we are. And now they had to throw that line in the under the under the bus. But that was a massive, massive mistake. And we, you know, central planning by the Federal Reserve is just as bad as central planning by any other government entity. And one of the kind of real things that conservatives in particular need to start thinking about is this kind of kind of complacency about the Fed, the, the, the idea that, well, just because the Fed, you know, is run has been run by people like Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke who were appointed by Republicans that somehow it's all okay. Like, no, actually, the Federal Reserve is, in my view, a broken institution that's made a lot of mistakes. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're bringing this up because I want to put this even before Powell. I mean, we can go back to Bernanke, right, with the quantitative easing. Um, uh, policies that began in, I think, 2009. And uh, Politico just had a really interesting article, I want to say it was a couple of months ago, about Thomas Honig, who was on the board of the Federal Reserve at the time. And for those who don't follow this thing, uh, d- don't follow the Federal Reserve terribly closely, the Federal Reserve really relies on consensus. They don't like to, they don't like split votes on policies. So they put a lot of pressure on every, uh, on themselves, really. To, to have unanimous votes on these policies, especially when they're controversial. And Thomas Honig finally kind of caved on that. Um, but he warned that the quantitative easing that was taking place in 2009, 2000, and, and you know, on and on and on, it was really extending all the way to, uh, in you can make an argument one form or another that it extended all the way through all of the COVID-19 relief bill, relief slash stimulus bills too. Um, all these expansions of monetary supply were going to, 
recreate the, 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 the situation in the 1970s where asset bubbles formed, where inflation ran wild, stagnation resulted, and you end up with several years of miserable economics until the Federal Reserve just simply um, acts to dramatically uh, tighten the monetary supply, force recession, in that particular case, two recessions, right, one right after yeah. the other, uh, in order to in order to correct this this overheating and stagnation and he was not that was not well received at the time now people are starting to look at that but you know and so you can make this argument that this starts with with an administration that was trying to recover from that was trying to do a recovery from the uh, great recession but didn't want to actually do the lower tax uh lower regulation policies that would provide a stable recovery from that. Rather, they wanted to increase taxes, increase um, uh, regulation, uh, put further uh, uh, what's what's a good way to put it? Uh, put further incentives in place for favored industries, green energy in particular. Um, all of which would result in lower economic growth and stagnation. And the Federal Reserve decided to assume the role of the pro-growth policy-making body, which is how you got quantitative easing in the first place. Um, now that's a little too neat and I'll explain why in just a second, but um, I wanna get your reaction to that and how that ties into all of this off-budget money that we've been spending over the last uh, couple of years on COVID. Well, I, I, one thing I would do is I'd, I'd recommend two things in terms of reading material for your audience. One is that political article you're mentioning is actually an excerpt from a great new book that just came out called The Lords of Easy Money by a financial journalist named Christopher Leonard, which uh, I encourage everyone on their show to read. It's a very well-written, clear explanation of the financial history of the last 15 years, basically since the financial crisis. And just the points that you were making, how there were these dissenters who knew that the Fed was going on this uh, really misguided path of blasting a lot of money in the econ into the economy, printing it out of thin air, which if you, if, you, if you double the number of dollars in the economy, if the economy stays the same size, then each of those dollars is worth half of what it was before to oversimplify. Right. And that's basically what the Fed has done, again, oversimplifying. And, uh, but, but the key thing is not every price goes up in exactly the same way, because the way money flows through the economy is sequential. First, it goes to Chase and JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, then it goes to the hedge funds and the private equity funds and the venture capital funds and the stock market and the bond market and the real estate market. And then it kind of filters down through rich people in the rest of the economy. It's literally trickle down economics. Uh, and uh, it, it's very dangerous. So that's one thing I encourage everyone to read. The other thing is I wrote a piece just to give myself a little plug uh, last fall in national affairs called Bitcoin and the U.S. Fiscal Reckoning. And that book goes in a sense a little bit higher of a level than the Lords of Easy Money. So the Lords of Easy Money is focused exclusively on the Fed and what the Fed does. But the problem is even deeper than the Fed, because for 50 years, we've lived under this fiat monetary system where the Federal Reserve is like the Supreme Court, an unaccountable bureaucracy that can do whatever it wants, basically completely change public policy in a way that's barely democratically accountable uh, and, and do a lot of things behind closed doors, think that they kind of have some command of the economy that they don't, and uh, and, and make a lot of bad decisions. And, 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 and part of that is driven by the debt. So the reason why the Federal Reserve has to print all this money is because the reason we went to the system in the first place in 1971, when Nixon 
left the gold standard, broke the Bretton Woods agreement that emerged out of World War II, was because we were running deficits, budget deficits and trade deficits that meant we were running out of gold. So when Germany, West Germany, built up all this economic strength and had all this, they were selling all these Mercedes and BMWs to Americans and they were getting dollars in exchange. Well, they can't use dollars in Germany, so they want to exchange them for gold, but the U.S. is running out of gold. So basically, U.S. had two choices. They could you know, devalue the dollar or basically, you know, what they did end up doing was stopping European countries from exchanging their dollars for gold, which is effectively devaluing the dollar. So we left the gold standard. The dollar collapsed relative to the value of gold. Before 1971, the price of gold was fixed to 135th of a troy ounce of gold. Within 10 years, it was 100, 1700th of an ounce of gold. So it had gone down by like 90 plus percent. And inflation was rampant during the 70s, as everyone knows. Um, and uh, and it's coming back, right? And so the point is that the deficit and the debt, how do we borrow money? This is really important that people understand. Yeah. So when we borrow money, we have this debt that keeps going up every year. It's now 30 trillion, right? We borrow money by issuing these things called treasury bonds, which are basically a fraction of the debt. When you buy a treasury bond from the government, you're basically lending the government the value of that bond. So let's say you buy a $100 treasury bond, you're lending $100 to the government with the hopes that they'd pay you back in two, five, or 10 years, or 30 years. Now, what happens if you think America's broke and you don't want to lend it the money? You don't buy the bond. In, in a market, if you don't buy things, the price of those things goes down, right. which means the interest rate goes up in the case of the way bonds work. And so people know that we're broke. Foreign governments, banks, institutions are buying less, fewer treasury bonds relative to the amount we're issuing. In a totally free market, that would mean that interest rates would rise, but the Fed doesn't want interest rates to rise. So what do they do? They buy up all the extra treasury bonds to keep interest rates low. It's kind of like, uh, you know, if you run up a credit card bill and instead of paying off your credit card bill, you get another credit card to pay off the first bill and hope that buys <laughs> you enough time to pay it before you have to pay off the second one. That's basically what the Federal Reserve has done. They're basically buying up all this debt, printing new dollars out of thin air to buy this debt and hope that nobody notices. And the fact is people are noticing and it's super dangerous. And this is, you know, not just the last 50 years, the next 50 years are going to be dangerous for our country because people have been wondering, you know, people like us who complain about the federal debts, like federal debt's bad. And everyone's like, well, what's the big deal? The party's going on, the economy's going well. Well, now we're starting to see the cracks in the edifice. And I really worry that our children and our grandchildren are going to grow up in a country where we're going to we're going to be nostalgic for the golden age of 2022. Yeah, inflation and all, right? They're going to be nostalgic for this level of inflation. And this gets exactly. me to this gets me to the point that you were making on um, Substack.freeop.org. So be sure to subscribe to Substack.freeop.org. We're all about shameless self promotion here. Love so, it. Yeah, so yeah, feel free to plug anything and everything. That's what we do here. Um, but I mean, it was on Twitter, actually. You had posted this on Twitter, which was the dilution of the buying power of the dollar, not just over the last 13 months, which is very evident, uh, not just over the last 15 years, but really over the last 50 years. I, well, I take that back. Over the last 40 years, because I think well, both, your, chart yeah. started, your chart started in 1983, I think it was. That, 82. The one, yeah, 82. I, I, yeah. I, did eight, I did 82 for a specific reason, which is if you actually look at it since, say, World War II, it's it's even worse, as you would expect, because that includes the 70s and the late 60s when right. there was really bad inflation. But my point in, in starting at 82 is 
That's when Paul Volcker came in and, and, and raised interest rates and tamed inflation. We had two generations, 40 years roughly of low inflation, sub you know 4% inflation, which the Federal Reserve has considered a success. Most economists say we've had stable increases in prices, nothing too crazy, two, 3% a year. That's pretty good. That's, that's the mainstream economic view. Right. But here's the crazy thing is that adds up, right? Like if you have um, 40 years of 2%, 3% inflation, the end result is over those 40 years, your purchasing power for every dollar you own is declined by two thirds. And that's yeah. what that chart is showing you that, forget about the last 12 months. The fact is if you, um, if you made the same amount of money in 1982 as you do now, and I hope that you've made more <laughs> over the course of your life, you know, your purchasing power has declined by two thirds. And, and that's um, incredible when you consider the fact of globalization and free trade and technology, right? The, 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 the smartphone in your hand should be, it is, and what, and should be way, way cheaper than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Right. Food has gotten cheaper because we get it from all over the world instead of growing it necessarily in the US. T-shirts have gotten cheaper, clothes have gotten cheaper. Like all these things that, that we buy actually for everyday use have gotten cheaper. And yet the purchasing power of the dollar has declined by two thirds, which tells you how profound inflation has been even in a quote unquote low inflation environment. You know, and this is, uh, I had a conversation with somebody earlier today, Ovik, about this and saying that this is, certainly Biden has made things worse, that 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 American Rescue Plan made things worse. It was a, ca a catalyst that kicked off this high inflationary cycle, but it was coming. And, yeah. and the reason why it was coming is because of the structure that we built. And again, since 1982, um, if you look at your chart, you can see that very easily. When we started running deficits, as a um, large deficits, I should say, as a matter of public policy. And I mean, we've been doing that for 40, well, 50, 50 years, really since the yeah. Vietnam War with some with a couple of brief interruptions since the Vietnam War. And this is the result of this. And you know, it's always interesting to me, Ovik, and I'm sure you, you, you find this amusing too, is that you go back like through old newspapers and stuff like this. I used, this used to be kind of a hobby of mine when I was in college, right? You go back through old newspapers from like 30, 40 years ago and say, oh, look, you could, you could get beef for, you know, 15 cents a pound and all that kind of stuff. You look at all the old ads, you know, and it's, oh, this is, yeah. it's so hilarious. Well, it's not so yeah. hilarious to me anymore, right? And I'm looking yeah. back when I was an adult at the prices of things, you know, in 1982, 1983 and realizing, yeah, I mean, uh, and it's almost, it's almost become, we've grown inured to it, right? We've grown inured to the idea that the dollar is going to depreciate on a year to year basis, whether or not we're devaluing it or not. Mm -hmm. And I mean, so when you're saving dollars, I mean, this has an impact if you're saving dollars, this has an impact if you're trying to, um, if you're trying to, you know, um, have any sort of liquid assets whatsoever. Um, the cost of money erodes, erodes its buying power over time because we're in that kind of environment. Um, and now it's going to get a lot worse. So we've got a couple of minutes left. And just because I want to make sure that people go over to, you know, freeop.org and substack.freeop.org uh, to subscribe to your newsletter. I don't want you to give away all of the secrets, but give us a thumbnail uh, prescription for reversing this? What is it that we need to do to reverse this? Well, uh, it's going to be hard because the, the fundamental thing, the, the, we, I, I'll say this, the fundamental thing we have to do is we have to solve the deficit debt. If the debt is continues to grow and the deficit continues to grow, 
uh, it's going to be really hard to get out of this this death trap that we're in. That's that's sort of like the sort of pessimistic view. But here's where, here's where we can start. We can start with something that you actually mentioned in, in reference to that political article. We can start by restoring the value of dissent on the Federal Reserve Board yeah. of Governors. Like that's something in the Supreme Court we do accept, right? That there is a prominent role for dissent uh, in the Supreme Court, always has been. We need to bring intellectual diversity to the Fed board. We need to bring dissent into the, like this whole Bernanke thing where it has to be unanimous so the Fed has no credibility. No, you should have a situation where there's a 5-4 vote or I can't remember the exact number of people on the board of governors. I think it's 13, whatever it is. It's like, we need to have the, uh, there should be vigorous dissents. Guys like Honig should be able to say, no, I disagree and here's why and not be shamed into that. But we should have vigorous debates about these things. You know, 150 years ago, Monetary before the creation of the Federal Reserve, monetary policy was actually one of the top domestic policy issues that everyone cared about. Uh, William Jennings Bryant's cross of, cross of gold speech, if anyone has studied American history and remembers that, that was all about monetary policy. We're going to go on a on a gold standard or a silver standard, and and the reason why a lot of people wanted to go on a silver standard was because it was looser monetary policy, basically. So a lot of this stuff, uh, really, I mean, the 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 definition of money back then was very well understood to be important. Once the Federal Reserve was created in the 1910s, in 1913, if I, if I recall correctly, ever since then it's been um, uh, it's been it's been taken out of the hands of the democratic process. So all that to say, the first thing we need to do is have more diversity in the Fed, and that means more hawks. Uh, Trump had nominated um, uh, Judy Shelton to the Fed, and her nomination was sunk by a handful of Republicans, which was too bad because she could have been someone who could have brought that intellectual diversity to the Fed. Others can in the future. But they're not. It's not going to happen under Biden because the the people Biden's nominating the Fed are people who not only agree with what Powell's doing, but want to be go even more in that direction. Well, also because Biden really wants an expansionist spending policy, so yeah. that he, yeah, I mean, because then that, it's like a sugar high. Like you, exactly. you put all this money in the economy, everyone feels happy for a little bit, and then all of a sudden the inflation comes later, and then you wonder what happened. It's That's a, a hangover. There is there is no better description of that. And I've used the term sugar high um, a number of times. Uh, than on the stimulus packages. I understood the CARES package because government broke the economy. Government needed, this is pottery barn rules, right? Government imposed extraordinary interventions on the economy. They needed to do something to to keep it from completely breaking apart. Um, but after that, it became, uh, oh, well, people are unhappy. Let's give them some more cash that they can spend to make them happy again. And uh, by the time that third tranche rolled around, it wasn't even necessary, right? The economy was actually percolating along pretty well. Um, we we had had um, you know decent normal size growth for the type of uh, you know for the type of restriction that were still in place, plus some of the supply chain issues, and that was the catalyst that started what we're experiencing now. But this was going to come, regardless, because that's the type of spending that we could have expected from the Biden administration. And frankly, we could have expected from a second uh, Trump administration too, because spending money is popular with people. Right, right, right. That's a, that's a key challenge we have is that people, uh, uh, people like spending money, it's popular. Cutting spending is not popular. And Republicans are very good at yelling about, you know, cultural issues, but they're not so great at cutting spending. No, they are not. Um, yeah. <laughs> Couldn't agree with you more on that one. Um, Ovik Roy, uh, before we let you go, tell us a little bit more about freeop.org and how to subscribe at substack.freeop.org. 
Well, it's easy to subscribe. Just go to free op, or substack.freeopt.org. That's F-R-E-O-P-P.org. And you can, you can subscribe there. You can also, if you want uh, more stuff from us, you can go to freeopt.org, the main website. Uh, and there are lots of options there for getting other, uh, other pieces of our material. Um, it's called the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. We're a new think tank, a free market think tank started in 2016. And our mission is to use economic uh, freedom free enterprise, technological innovation, and pluralism to improve the lives of Americans whose incomes or wealth are below the US median. How do we show that the most progressive idea ever invented by humanity is individual liberty? That's what we work on every day. And we're, we're uh, I think we're, we've made a lot of progress. We're in a lot of different policy areas, healthcare, education, housing, energy, uh, macroeconomics, banking, regulation, immigration, a whole range of stuff. You can find it on our website. Uh, tell us what you think. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at A-V-I-K. That's my first name. At A-V-I-K. And by the way, you can also go to the FreeOp blog for some thoughts yeah. from some of their scholars. That's blog.freeop.org. Blog.freeop.org. Freeop.org, the main site. Substack.freeop.org to get the really cool stuff in the newsletter. So uh, be sure to do that. And at A-V-I-K on Twitter. That's where you find Ovik Roy. Ovik, thank you so much for being uh, with us. And as a fellow Texan, uh, I can't wait to get together with you in person and just hang out and have fun. And it's, it's great to see you. And uh, you've really made my day because this, you know, we, we worked hard to get the Substat launch going. You know, it's thousands of names from our email list, our old email list that we had to port over and make sure there wasn't any like mistakes and uh, it's just great, great, great to get it out there. Great to get the reception to it and, and look forward to putting more out. All right, Ovik Roy, thank you so much for being with us. Stay tuned for more from The Ed Morrissey Show. Don't go anywhere. Thanks for watching The Ed Morrissey Show Podcast Edition. If you like what you've seen, be sure to subscribe at the channel that you watched on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We love subscribers. More importantly, it lets everybody know that we're out there. So again, thank you for watching. Be sure to subscribe.